0: If you lift weights for a day there's no change and you might give up but if you do it every day for a year and you look back you're like oh my gosh look at my arms now or look at you know how healthy i'm feeling or look at how much more empathetic my kids are how much this business has grown that's what we're trying to do and, and make it you know a purposeful habit and a purposeful daily goal
1: purposely podcast speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Ryan Medeski, Based in Los Angeles, California, Ryan heads up the tech for good platform Patico. Think digital pals or pen pals, children connecting globally to widen their horizons and assist their development. Ryan has set a fascinating path to non-profit world, he used to create online games. Really nice guy, really interesting conversation. Enjoy, and don't forget to share with friends, family, and colleagues. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, subscribe. Enjoy the episode. Brian Majeski, welcome to Purposely Podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I, I, I sincerely
0: appreciate this.
1: I had you down as sitting in sunny California, but you confirmed that it's not so sunny today.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in Echo Park, which is sort of near downtown LA and some hills, so... Yeah, it is uh, It's a mild 70-something, as you would
1: expect Los Angeles to be. Wonderful. And you're the executive director of Empatico. What is it and what's its mission and, and purpose? To put it simply, you know, Empatico
0: was was founded as a way to bridge divides in the world. We started in 2017. And at the time, we looked around the landscape and saw the beginning or middle or whatever you want to call it of the, the division we're seeing today sort of escalating and, and spiraling and escalating you know, seeing people getting further isolated from each other, people more and more easily demonizing each other. And we thought, you know, what if we could make a service for schools to help sort of inoculate kids or head off this kind of thinking in the next generation of citizens and, and leaders around the world? So that was, that's the mission. That's the, the purpose. And the what we decided to do is try to create a, a way for kids anywhere, you know, around the world. This isn't a U.S. thing. This isn't a New Zealand thing. This is like a global thing. Where we want kids to meet, communicate with people who they think might be different from them, and really show them that in fact they have a lot more in common than than they thought. Um, so that's that's our mission is really to prepare the next generation for uh, uh, this increasingly connected world in which being able to navigate you know cross cultural relationships with with empathy is you know uh, a core component for success in life and in business.
1: Wonderful. So enabling children, what I like to think is sort of virtual pen pal, like it's yeah. a platform.
0: A hundred percent. Yeah. So when you get down into the practice of it, it's it's just that we were sort of a, a network that allows teachers to meet each other and communicate and schedule meetings between their classrooms. And for the kids, the end of their journey is having a, a video call with their partner classroom and, and being able to actually see them and talk to them and interact with them uh, very much like 21st century pen pals.
1: And how's it going so far? So have you, is traction been difficult? Have you had a lot of take up?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, we were thriving pretty well. The pandemic threw a monkey wrench in, you know, our goals and everyone else's goals. And we're just now, you know, we relaunched as, a, as an updated service just a couple of months ago. But since our founding five years ago, you know, close to 60,000 educators from over 166 countries around the world, and there's like 240, it depends on how you count it have created an account with us, you know, we've had, uh, you know, a few thousand educators actually do the, the live exchanges and about a hundred thousand kids in grades like K through eight have um, had those virtual exchanges. And as you'd imagine, with any sort of a program we're scaling and accelerating and, and things are, are going pretty great for
1: us. And I've been on, an ad, on your website and had a look at how it works and you get a bit of a feel for how the sort of magic happens. Like, what are the sort of consequences of it? Like when you, have you sat in some of the sessions? Have you seen it sort of live and happening?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, because we're all remote now, I don't get to go in the classroom as a, you know, as a field visit, but it's also really easy to sort of patch myself in with the permission of the teachers, of course. But, um, you know, there's a, a couple of really great stories I like to tell. One is, uh, you know, we were watching exchange between two classrooms. Uh, one was in, you know, small town outside of New York. One was in Brazil. I think it was Sao Paulo, something like that. And, uh, you know, one of the teachers was translating for them. And as they started talking to each other, you know, first they realized like it's one of those moments where the, it really works and the kids really get engaged and, and they realized like they all love pizza. And that was a great thing for them to learn about each other. And they started talking about, you know, what they have for, for breakfast. And, you know, the kids in Brazil said, you know, we have, you know, most of us have rice for breakfast. And the kids in New York said, well, most of us have Cheerios for breakfast. And then there's this great moment where the kids in Brazil had no idea what Cheerios were. And so, the kids had to sort of like explain Cheerios and how to explain Cheerios to like <laughs> in a vacuum, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, and this happens all the time with the debate between football and what we call American football and, and you all call soccer, you know, they learn, they love like the same music, strangely, you know, across, you know, 6,000 miles, the pop stars are pop stars nowadays. And, uh, you know, so like, that's sort of like the magic is when the kids sort of see each other and, and actually engage in conversation, talk to each other. There's another story where we had a, this is within the U.S. um, We had kids in St. Louis and kids at a a Jewish school in in New York City. And, you know, we set up the call and there's a bunch of, you know, people observing it. It was one of these, um, you know, type of field, virtual field visits. And uh, one of the kids in St. Louis sort of like whispered in their teacher's ear. She said to the kids at the Jewish school, she said, "Um, you know, my student wants to know uh, what those hats the boys are wearing are, you know, the, the yarmulkes. And you know, everyone sort of like white knuckled the desk because like our adult expectations are like this could get hairy. But of course it's just kids being kids. And and the kids in, in New York, you know, explained that it was a head covering that the men wear in their community and they had this like great moment of learning and exchange and and it was just a reminder that like not only like when we have all these completely different cultures in the U.S. that sometimes they never even see or interact with each other, which is wild, yeah. But that you know these these kids have pure curiosity and the idea that there's a space where they can just earnestly answer and uh, you know ask questions and get answers and and really connect is it's just the magic of the program that I, I fell in love with.
1: Yeah, and and really opening up the world. And I I love the idea of having to explain things that you take for granted yeah and then that being a little bit difficult as well so even for even for children you know yeah i know you are fairly active on twitter and you are passionate about what you do and it's really around kind of one thing that jumped out was you talking about binary thinking and Mm. you know we should do less binary thinking and Apache really talks to that you know that life has lots of shades of gray (laughs) there's lots of complexities and But yeah, talk about the sort of passion you have developed for, you know, trying to bring people together and get them to understand each other, have have empathy, understand each other.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think the the first thing, (laughs) this is part of just growing up and getting to an age that I am, is you realize that nothing is black and white, you know, no, it's, there's neither, you know, good nor bad. People are all, you know, gradients of it. I have a, my family is politically diverse, and you know, I have people who are very liberal, I have people who are extremely conservative, and I love them all, and we don't talk about certain things because it doesn't go that way, but, but the idea that you can really disagree with someone and love them simultaneously is really important for me, and sort of my journey in life has, has been one of seeing that things don't fit neatly into boxes, and maybe there's a somewhat antiquated victorian mindset that things should fit neatly into boxes and so that can apply to almost anything you can imagine whether it's you know political affiliation whether it's race or gender all the stuff that's, you know when you let go of this sort of um binary mindset it really opens up not only the world of possibilities for you but a world of compassion that you can have for the people around you
1: and i imagine having that that passion for the this course and it suddenly affects us all. But that led you towards Empatico and, and joining. So you, you joined in t- 2021. So, been there just over a year?
0: Just barely a year. That's right.
1: Yeah. And in terms of that decision to join, like the passion you had for the course?
0: I was working for UNICEF previously and I had built this really incredible program called UNICEF Kid Power, where we empowered kids around the world to like, learn or understand that they had the power to make the difference in the world. And it was going incredibly well. I sort of navigated it through the pandemic in a way that allowed us to scale and grow. And we accidentally went global. And it was supposed to be a domestic U.S. program. And I had to sort of hide our success or else I'd get in trouble. And I just realized that, you know, if I really wanted to to take my passion and my work to that next level, I needed to find, you know, an organization that was also a nonprofit. I fell in love with nonprofit work. I could never do anything ever again. I think I heard one of your previous guests talking about the same sort of thing. Like once you realize you can save lives with your work, like why would you do anything else? And so I knew that I wanted to work in, in nonprofit leadership. I have a unique point of view about product design and, and um, you know, executing programs, but it was really Podico's mission about sort of, you know, tamping down this discourse about inoculating children against divisiveness and hate. It's, it really resonates with me and my journey and my life story, I think.
1: And looking back to your past, so you grew up in California and and you went to University of San Francisco?
0: <laughs> I wish. I went to San Francisco State
1: University, which is uh, the uh, <laughs> second class school in San Francisco. Focus on creative writing or that was your degree?
0: My degree is in creative writing. It, I went to college in the late 90s, and back then, I was also working 40 hours a week as a video game designer and then taking a full load of credits at college and had a weekend job. Uh, that's just how I've always been. But there, I knew I wanted to work in technology. I knew I wanted to be a video game designer. That was my dream back then. And in the 90s, they hadn't really created coursework or majors or anything in that field. So creative writing was the closest thing I could get to uh, video game design at the time in any college, sort of anywhere. And then, you know, I also, at the same time was, had this sort of minor in in uh, cultural zeitgeists and, you know, really learning about how no one person is responsible for shaping science or politics or society, These you know, these characters are, bur- you know, gurgle out of the zeitgeist, but it's, the, you know, there's this energy as a society that, that it exudes it was actually upon reflection, one of the, like, the greatest learnings I took from there, and I bring to my work with nonprofits and especially with or to say, if there's a zeitgeist, like I don't have to be, you know, the Einstein of empathy. I don't have to be the figurehead or the, the, the pinnacle that everyone looks at. I can be someone who can nudge and shape culture for the good, you know, as part of this cultural movement.
1: What sort of led you to gaming when you were younger? I mean, the obvious games are great to play but in terms of you know getting interested in the creative side and in the production what what led you in that direction
0: i think number
1: one i was a teenager and video games are super fun
0: <laughs> so that was that was a real easy one i was always a really strong writer and creative writer i love telling stories i played a lot of dungeons and dragons as a kid and i was always the the dungeon master, like making the quests, and so game design from from Dungeons and Dragons is a really easy step. And then it, the reason it clicked for me was, you know, my background is, you know, I don't come from, you know, uh, <laughs> my my background is one of not many means, I'll say. And so the type of access you need into other industries, like, wasn't there in the video game industry. It was really a question of like do you have the wits to do it? Do you have the drive to do it? You know, it's all these things that that anyone could have. You don't need to have an MBA from, you know, Stanford to, to make a video game. You could just be a, a gutsy creative kid with a good story to tell and you can talk your way into the business. And so I think not knowing that, I wouldn't be able to articulate that at the time, but looking back, it was clear that that's why, my path led into this channel because, you know, maybe some other paths weren't quite as open for,
1: for someone of my, of my background. And from quite a young age, you mentioned it a little bit earlier around being willing to hustle. Is that sort of obsessive? Like when you get something in your mind, you, you really have to follow it through.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I, I think, yes, I do get obsessive about things and, and get sort of uh, fixated in an idea until I can solve it. For me, it's, I love big problems. I love big puzzles. I love big challenges. I'm, I've been a chess player since I was five or six years old. Like I try to find the most complicated systems you know, that are available to me and try to crack them. That's just in my nature, and I, and
1: I don't let like, go until I do. And focusing on gaming, parents, were they happy with that? Was that sort of mini expectations from, the, from your family? That's a great question. I
0: don't think they really understood what I was doing. Just about, you know, you could say this from... From any young person who is moving into a, a an industry that didn't exist twenty years ago, how are your parents supposed to understand what the heck you're even doing, they were very happy for me that I uh, was finding success, and that you know I did all the basic things that you need to do to pay rent and and get a paycheck and that that all made them extremely happy and proud of me, but they weren't you know consumers of
1: my products or really you know it's not much of it probably yeah and You've had some success, so from what I've seen, you've produced a number of games and you've been creative and put on others. The one that sort of jumped out at me was Criminal Minds. Tell us a bit little, little about that. About that, and then the sort of decision to you know think about this might not be where your career is going to end.
0: Well, you know that you actually found the exact moment where I pivoted. It was that game was the last sort of commercial game like that i ever made and i'll say i was working at a, a company that was making what they called hidden object games back then it was you know these sort of lightweight you know potato chip kind of casual games and we would just make the same game over and over and over again with a different veneer like one day it'd be criminal minds when they would be sherlock holmes one day it would be murder she wrote and you know they all did wonderful but it was a formula and uh I author that I really enjoy. His name is Haruki Murakami, a Japanese novelist, and he had this character who wrote articles for travel magazines that were never meant to be read, uh, just to fill the page, you know, and he, in the book, he called it shoveling cultural snow, and that really resonated with me. Like, I was shoveling cultural snow, and it's a job, and I learned a trade, and I learned how to build technology I learned how to write stories I learned how to work with artists and engineers and all of that it was fantastic I'm still friends with my uh, my former boss back then she's a, a mentor to me but I also knew that it wasn't really what I wanted to do with my career and so I moved into creating more educational content and then um, started my own business making books for for middle readers which are kids like you know seven to ten years old who stop reading or they can stop reading and don't really become lifelong readers if they give it up around that age and so i was creating more game-like accessible content for them that was still a book right when tablets sort of emerged and then from there i wound up working for reading rainbow which is uh you know i don't know if it has any resonance in, in new zealand but it was a huge show in the 80s starring levar burton and it's really was the gateway for millions of kids into literacy in the 80s uh sort of like The show you watch after Sesame Street, and I helped them reimagine it as this, like, Netflix library of books for kids. And we were, you know, we were, like, first to market for this sort of um, what it means to make books for emerging readers online. And that was just really meaningful and wonderful. And then from there, I moved, you know, I took the big step to UNICEF where I was able to, you know, like I said, save 100,000 lives doing the exact same stuff I've been doing to make the Criminal Minds game. And that just blew me away that that's even a possibility in the world.
1: Must have been a really hard time to step away because you looks like it's been successful. When would decision, do you remember coming home from work one day and thinking like, I really want my life to be more about purpose and, and, you know, I don't want it to be about shoveling cultural snow, which I think is a great way of describing it. But that sort of turning away from, I guess, what would have been a trajectory with high salaries and all that goes with success, like was that, even a, a tough decision for you? Like, do you remember it being quite? Sort I've of...
0: always been sort of service-minded. You know, um, in my my elementary school every year our classroom did a service project, and my mom growing up was always the one. You know, even if we didn't have anything, she was putting together you know Christmas baskets for kids who had even less than us. And so, the idea of of being of service, the idea of purpose, has always been inside of me, and. You know, the, the moments that I sort of stepped away from making video games was, you know, if I were to be totally honest, half of it was, was for this purpose. Like, you know, yeah, you're right. I was making good money. The job was pretty easy. I had a lot of fun, but it also felt sort of empty. And then it was also right during that, the economic collapse of 2010, 2012, whatever it was. And I really, that entrepreneurial part of me, the hustler part of me also said, if you know, the company was struggling, they recovered, they're doing fine, but the company was struggling at the time. And I said to myself, I'm going to lose my job or if things aren't going to go my way, I want to do it on my terms. I want to die by my own sword. And so I took that entrepreneurial energy and just said, I'll, I'll make my own business. And if I'm going to, if I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail my way. And that's, that, that was a real, you know, jump for me to go from that sort of work to the work I really wanted to be doing.
1: Does it feel, make you feel more more alive? Do you feel oh yeah like it's not even work?
0: Yeah. Anytime you are your own boss, and this is the kind of fun thing where I didn't really change as a human being in that first year where I went from video game producer to CEO of, you know, uh, a at, at startup, but the world's perception of me changed. And also the living by your own width has always been a thing that really drew me to it because you feel more alive when, you know, any sort of um, work I've done has been, you know, walking that razor line to say, you know, since then, at least, it has been to say, if we're going to do this, we're going we're gonna to go for it, and we're going to be big, and, you know, we're going to reach for goals that aren't reachable, and, you know, the, the idea uh, that there's um, <laughs> you said it right, it's like you, you feel more alive when you're facing danger, when you're facing ruin, and, is that too is an addictive feeling, I guess.
1: The idea to pick up someone else's concept in, in Patico and just like you said earlier, to scale it, to grow it, there's a big challenge there. Um, it's been successful, but you have a big vision for it. Yeah. Just going back to kind of getting the the role and why they chose you, like, tell us about that process because I always find that interesting. Do you apply it with others? Like you threw your hat in the ring?
0: Well, yeah, I, you know, the the role sort of came to me through a friend. He said, oh, I, you know, I, I applied for this thing, but I'm going to take this other job. And I think you're great for it. So I, I got sideloaded into the process, which was always, you know, I've never really gotten a job going in the front door. I don't know how many people do. I, I always wind up somehow sideloaded into the, into the process. And this thing that really made me want to be part of Empatico was, you know, I had a call with them and I was like, hmm, this is interesting. I don't know. And every call got progressively more interesting. The people I met were like just like me, and you know my leadership style is uncommon i'm uh, I like to think of myself as a more persuasive leader than a than a sort of uh, domineering or commanding leader. Uh, I don't like to tell what people what to do. I like to help them see the way through explaining what we're doing. Um, you know it's a more compassionate approach and I think a way that garners more loyalty personally. but through that, I met the board of Empatico. I met Daniel. I met the people on the team and they all saw the world as I did. And I don't know how many times I, before then I had been in a room where people saw leadership in this way. You know, uh, there's this funny story when I was working in video games, there's a, a guy I worked with who, you know, he, he had mobility issues and the, you know, the, the video game testers were on the other side of this open floor plan. And since he couldn't really go over there and and sort of persuade them to do anything, he had to sort of command his energy from far away. And it came out as like an aggressive barking of orders. I remember watching him and and thinking about, you know, what is it to be a leader like that? What is it to, you know, sort of like use your aggression as a, a means to an end? And what are other ways you can convey your desires, convey what you want and convince people to work for you? And that's what you know, Empatica is actually part of that too. It's like, you know, how do we connect to these people around the world? How do we talk about things that we care about or we need or we want that might be dangerous territory or might be a uh, type of conversation that you're not looking to have, but need to have. Yeah. And finding that, that compassion to talk to another person or, or empathy to see the the world through someone else's eyes is, something that i bring to the table and i hope that i can radiate into the Empatico uh, experience for for teachers and kids
1: wonderful so you walk into the role you've got a team you've got an existing team that's been running you said for 5 years and you've been there for just on a year you talked about a kind of pivot yeah or a re you know redo of what's already done before was that a really tough decision well, what tell us a bit more deep about that
0: well i mean it was and it wasn't i think that if you sort of hop in a time machine and go back to 2017, 2018, a lot of decisions that were made need updating, right? Like there wasn't Zoom back then. There was, like I used it, but no one else really used Zoom. And so the idea of like a video connection platform was uh, hard to build. They built it in the a, in a way you would five years ago. But if you get back in a time machine and come to 2022, 2023, wherever we are now, the the ideas that you know culture has moved so far technology has moved so far the expectations of the customers or the users of the you know the people you're trying to reach and influence have moved so far and the technology that i inherited had not kept up you know and, and in a lot of ways had painted itself into a corner and so while i did not join the company intending to sort of redo the platform it, needed it, and it wasn't the decision I wanted to take, but it was the decision that I you know wound up going forward with and I'm you know we're in such a better place technology wise. The experience feels a lot the same. you know that we're still connecting teachers. Um, we made it so that you can connect with a whole bunch of teachers at once. It's more of like a community experience than we had before. Some things that are just expected today that weren't expected in 2017, 2018, we do now. And the best part is that we've given ourselves a, a new platform to really reach higher and, and grow and, and follow what our users want and what our teachers need and really create that experience for kids to create
1: those habits in the classroom to
0: influence culture.
1: Were the trustees open to that? Or was that quite a hard message to deliver that actually a reboot was needed? Like the day you called them, I could just imagine <laughs> like a. <laughs> yeah. Coming to that meeting going
0: yeah wow well i mean i think it was an unspoken truth that no one really wanted to face but it wasn't a surprise when i said it i'll, I'll put it that way like you know you sit, you lay it all out and there's only one path forward if you tell your story right and it was just apparent and we had to sort of shift our um our ambitions for the year you know the the idea that we had at first is that we could you know trade out pieces as we went throughout the year so we'd sort of incrementally grow and improve and and instead, we had to do more of um this sort of waterfall, like work on a thing for six months and launch it approach, which no one really does anymore. But sometimes you have to do. That was the biggest uh, pill to swallow to say, oh "Yeah, we're not going to. You know, you hired me, and you're not going to see any results for ten months. Sorry, <laughs> you know, is is that's the hard pill to swallow? But we got through, and, and everyone understood. And,
1: and I think the proof is in the pudding. And your vision for the future, like where would you like to see it? the next year or two?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, here's my big audacious goal. I want a generation of kids to grow up to be more empathetic and compassionate and tolerant than any other time, let's say, in history. And not just here, but you know, like in the in the U.S., but in the whole world. That's the big goal and the mission. And to do that, you know, then we're trying to grow Empatico into being the platform that educators around the world turn to when they want to connect their classrooms to another classroom for any reason. You want to connect because you want to learn language? please, there's a cultural exchange right there. You want to connect because you love STEM engineering. We have a program for that where we work with code.org and we connect classrooms between the U.S. and Egypt to work on an hour of code together. You want to, you know, whatever your reason is, we have content and a program for that that teaches social, emotional, and empathetic learning while achieving those goals. So that's that's sort of the, the big idea. And, um, you know, when I say it like that, it sounds big, but it's really, for me, uh, you know, a, a pretty modest goal. You know, I really think about change that being instantaneous, but a thing that takes dedication and persistence. And it's, you know, it's like building muscles, you know, whether you're trying to influence culture or or grow a product, it's it's the same. You, you know, if you lift weights for a day, there's no change and you might give up. But if you do it every day for a year and you look back, you're like, oh my gosh, look at, look at my arms now, or look at, you know, how healthy I'm feeling, or look at, how much more empathetic my kids are, how much this business has grown. That's what we're trying to do and, and make it you know, a purposeful habit and a purposeful daily goal. And we'll, we'll 100% get there. And, and my intent is to help educators do you know, exactly that for their students. Wonderful.
1: And in terms of barriers to, to you know, progress and delivering what you just described, I guess you're relatively new to having to raise money to, to fuel your mission. No, I mean part of the
0: the great. I worked for UNICEF Ventures, which is like a, a startup-minded group inside of UNICEF uh, UNICEF USA, and we had a ventures team that I ran, and we were really left to our own devices. So, you know, I raised four million dollars a year from I when I inherited the program as a managing director. I sort of worked my way up. We were losing money, and I raised us to break even and profitable within a year, and it was because of. So my approach to development is just as radical as my approach to product-facing nonprofit initiatives. And, you know, we were able to work with um, a whole bunch of different partners from, you know, Hollywood to the hospital system and everything in between. And, you know, we're bringing a very similar approach to Empatico, but the added challenge that, you know, if if I like to uh, take on huge puzzles and solve them, Is to say, not only can we do this in the US, which is where I live and I have expertise, but we can do this all over the world. And so, of course, fundraising isn't our core KPI. I love it. It is super fun, but all we need to do is keep the lights on. And, you know, Daniel Libetsky, who founded the, you know, the kind company and, uh, is, you know, also founded the kind foundation, which we're a program of. He's our, our biggest donor. So that's, you know, fantastic. We have this, this backstop and then we have room to grow. And really, um, as we scale our, our ambitions and scale our reach, the goal is to, you know, find partners and, and um, organizations around the world that can basically just
1: help, help us keep the lights on while we do it.
0: And, yeah, there could be worse places to be
1: alive. Wonderful. Ryan Majewski, massive thank you for joining me on Purpose
0: Day. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun.
1: Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.